So good to worship God together. We're going to study His Word. If you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're walking through John's Gospel over the course of the next several weeks, and uh, this, this particular Sunday brings us to chapter 2. It might help us get oriented, I think, to this study by just thinking about the big pillars and structures of this gospel. So you've got, you've got a prologue in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, then you've got an epilogue at the end in chapter 21, and all that stuff in the middle, all the content, the body of the gospel is classically in church history broken out into two sections. So it's called the book of signs and the book of glory. The book of signs runs from chapter 1, verse 19 through 12, verse 50, and the book of glory uh, runs from chapter 13 through chapter 20, verse 31. So that's kind of how it breaks out. In the book of signs, you've got these seven signs that display the character and identity of Jesus. And even John at the end, we saw this a few weeks ago, he says, these are the, this is the reason I chose exactly those signs, so that you might believe and by believing have life in his name. And then when you get to the book of glory, John spends extended time showing you the glory of Christ in his passion. The, as John Piper would say, the blazing center of the glory of God is the cross of Jesus Christ, and John believes that, and he unfolds that in his gospel by dedicating, slowing time down in chapter 13 and letting us take in the glory of the cross. So our study brings us here to the first of Jesus' signs, the first of his miracles. They're called signs for John because he wants to accent the fact that these miracles aren't just for their own sake. They're, they're meant to point upwards, to indicate something else, something deeper, something profound about who Jesus is and something profound about the nature of his kingdom, something profound about the nature of Jesus' work in the world. And initially, I was planning on skipping chapter 2. You know, we're going to do 16 weeks. We're trying to cover 21 chapters, so there's going to be some selectivity going on. Initially, I was going to skip this one, um, but then I thought on reflection, one, it would be incredibly convenient and predictable for a Baptist pastor to skip the one passage where Jesus turns water into wine. So, um, so we're not doing it for that reason. But two, and more substantively, uh, this is an area where, where we see, we, we talked about this a couple years ago when we looked at Luke chapter 4. So Luke chapter 4 is Jesus' first sermon. This is Jesus' first miracle. One of the things that we saw when we looked at Luke chapter 4 is it seems suggestive that Jesus pulled off the shelf Isaiah 61 and said, this is me on message. I'm going to be here all day. This is what I'm doing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me too, and he gives you a list of all the things he's going to be about. It seemed really intentional that Jesus said, this is my first message, and I want to set the tone right here at the threshold of my ministry. And so it seemed we would be remiss to skip over his first sign in the sense that perhaps here again Jesus is saying, I want you to see the way I walk in the front door. I want this to set the tone. I want you to see the significance of this sign and why it's first. So, uh, for those reasons, admittedly with some fear and trembling, the water into wine text, John chapter 2, verse 1, if you'd follow along as I read... From God's word. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. 
when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Verse 11, note this, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there is a particular glory that Jesus intended to reveal in this unique sign. I want to set us up to take this passage in with that statement at the top of your notes, and it goes like this. Some of us are better at fasting than feasting. Some of us are better at fasting than feasting. Um, Jesus interacts regularly in the Gospels with sort of his antagonists. This would be the religious leaders. He comes into a very uh, strident religious context And the religious leaders in that context, the sort of gatekeepers, uh, don't like what he says. Almost everything that comes out of his mouth, they find a way to not like it. And Jesus even says uh, in Luke chapter 7, it's like Jesus crafts a little ditty. He crafts like a children's song about them. And here's what the song says. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. And here's how Jesus explains that little song he crafted about the Pharisees. He said, For John the Baptist did not come eating bread and drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, John the Baptist led with mourning and fasting, and you hated that, and then I came leading with feasting, and you hated that too. Like, Are you guys ever satisfied? Is there anything that anyone could possibly do that you wouldn't hate? Religion has a way of being against everything. Finding a way to be against everything, especially joy. That seems to be Jesus' point. He comes with feasting and merriment and joy, and and they don't even like that either. Again, these are signs, so they're pointing to something Beyond the thing that's happening on the ground right there at the wedding, they're pointing to something about Jesus, about his character, about the nature of his work and the nature of his kingdom. It's just interesting that here, in his first miracle, to set the tone for his ministry, what glory, what particular glory of Jesus shines through this sign? And I would submit that it's this. Jesus' first miracle identifies him as Lord of the feast. Lord of the feast. Jesus is unleashing joy on the world through his life and ministry and the inbreaking of his kingdom. So let's back up and look at it in the passage. It unfolds in two acts, if you will. The first act is this. They don't have any wine. Act one, 
quote from Mary, they don't have any wine. You see the setting there, look down in verse one and two, it's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, so that's where we are. It's safe to assume that Jesus knows the family, knows the, perhaps the family of the groom or the family of the bride or maybe both. It's not surprising because Jesus grew up in Galilee. Nazareth is about six miles from here, so he would have probably known these people. That's why Jesus is there. That's why his mom is there. His family's there. Presumably Joseph is dead by now. That's why Joseph isn't at the foot of the cross either when Jesus dies. Many believe that that's indicative of the fact that Joseph was not in the picture anymore. But Jesus' family's there. Not only is his family there because they're from Galilee, and this is, this is in Cana of Galilee, but Jesus' friends, his friends are from Galilee as well. So they're Galilean disciples. Everybody knows everybody in these small towns. And so they're all here for the big wedding. And weddings, this becomes so clear. You read through the scriptures, you read through this account even, and you can pick up that weddings were a huge deal. I mean, they're a huge deal now, but they, they were a really huge deal in first century ancient Israel I mean, these wedding celebrations would go on for days on end. Sometimes, oftentimes, the wedding celebration would last seven days. You don't, you don't leave the wedding in one sense. It's not over for a whole week. And so you, had, you purchased in advance provisions for the refreshment of all these guests on the most important day of the life of this family, and you're gathered around this wedding, and it was a huge deal. I mean, this is a, a culture that takes hospitality very seriously, and, and it's located in a part of the world where that's known for viticulture. It's known as a culture that knows how to make wine and knows how to drink wine. That's the part of the world, right? So disaster strikes in the form of the wine running out. We might think, what's the big deal, right? In our culture, we might think that that's not a huge ordeal, but this is not the equivalent of you know, you're running out of sweet tea in South Alabama. This is much more invested into the culture. So, you know, the national symbol of Japan is a rising sun. The national symbol of Wales is a dragon. The, the, the national symbol of ancient Israel is a vine. This is woven into their national self-understanding and identity, and the burden was on the groom's family to provide for the celebration of the wedding. And if you ran out of refreshments in this kind of world and context, you were subject, you were liable to a lawsuit. The wedding itself could even be annulled because of how bad of a miss this was. This is not a catering error or blunder. This is a shame honor culture in the first century takes hospitality very seriously, and so failing to provide refreshments for the most epic day in the life of your family, an event of this magnitude would have brought lifelong shame. You would have been a pariah in society. A label would have been slapped on you for the rest of your life. The rabbis used to say, and there was a saying, without wine there is no joy. And Mary comes up in verse 3 saying, they have no wine. This is not a small problem. This is a huge problem. Verse 4, look at it. Jesus says, what does that have to do with you, you and me, woman? Now, this sounds really disrespectful. Right? It's almost like she should pull him aside, right? Don't talk to your mama like that. I know you're the Savior, but don't talk to your mama like that, right? Um, that's because of the way that we sometimes hear that word used. If you have the term woman at the front or back end of something, it can almost be 
uh, handled in a way that sounds derogatory or disrespectful. This term woman is not used that way by Jesus. It, this is the same exact way that he speaks to his mother Mary. He uses the word woman when he is speaking tenderly from the cross, entrusting her to the care of his best friend, John. And he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. This is the same term he'll use when he draws out into conversation the woman at the well. This is, it's almost like our term ma'am or madam. It's a term of, of respect. It's, he's not disrespecting her. Yet, I, I hasten to add, he is being direct. He is being candid. He, there is a gentle rebuke in these words that we have to account for. To try to account for it, let me just use an analogy. So, Imagine you are the, uh, the CEO of a, a large and successful company here in Birmingham, and you're hosting a major event in the city. You're the host, you own the company, you're hosting a major evening festivity downtown Birmingham, and halfway through the event, your dad or your mom, who's there, you invited them there, right? So you've got all the company and all the employees and so forth, but dad or mom pulls up alongside and says, son, um, you know what this party's missing? It's missing fireworks. And a party without fireworks, it's just, it's not right. So could you send somebody? Who's your guy who could maybe send somebody and go get some, let's get some fireworks, right? Um, you would be well within reason to clarify the nature of this evening's festivities. They would be well within your, your place to say, one, mom, I'm 30, right? So I'm not nine years old. And, and the nature of tonight's events, I just need you to know, look, I love you, I respect you, but my role in this event isn't the role of being your son. Like, my role in this event is as CEO. Like, that's what this event is. It's a company-hosted festivity. It's almost like Jesus is saying, Mom, um, I'm not performing miracles just for our friends and family. Like, I'm not just performing miracles from here on out for guys who signed my yearbook at Galilee High School. Like, that's not the nature of this thing. Mom, I need you to know on principle, on the merits, my miracles and what I say is at the direction of my heavenly father, not my earthly mother. It's not disrespecting. It's just saying, this is the nature of how it goes. By the way, Jesus doesn't do what he wants to do. He says, everything I say, I say because the Father tells me to say it. Everything I do, I do because the Father tells me to do it. So he's clarifying the nature of this situation. I'm not just going to get friends and family out of a jam with my miracles. That's not the purpose. Something bigger is going on here. The interesting thing is, even though Jesus pushed back, pushes back on the merit of thing in order, in order to clarify something, he, um, he didn't say he wouldn't do it, right? He did leave that question a little bit open. I love what happens next. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, mom. And verse 5, Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do, All right? So it's, <laughs> it's almost like mom somehow knows that this is, uh, this is what he's meant to do right here and right now. Um, I love those words, do whatever he tells you to do. She knew that Jesus was destined. She knew his identity. She knew what, there was a day of exaltation 
coming for him. Simeon's prophecy had given her an advanced look on who Jesus was. So, you know, the whole song that's sung at the time of Advent, oftentimes, Mary, did you know? And it asks this series of questions, did you know this? Did you know this about Jesus? The answer to all those questions is yes. She, yes, she knew that. Yes, she knew that. Yes, she knew that. The angel told her the significance of who this child was. And when she said, though, do whatever he tells you to do, there, there, was a, there was a faith that was prompted, I think, that is so evident in that moment. And even, you stop and think about those words. Wiser words have never been spoken. Do whatever he tells you to do. You just stop. What a picture that is of discipleship within a Christian home. That's, that's the nature of it all, isn't it, right? Getting down on your knee, the kids are really young. Son and daughter, and you're saying, what? In essence, you're saying, son, do whatever he tells you. Follow him. His way is the way of wisdom. His path is the path of light, of life. Do whatever he tells you to do. What is mission? Why we recite the Great Commission every Sunday when we leave. And what does it say? Right? Baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then do what? Teach them to observe or obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, the Great Commission is, hey, new believer, do whatever he tells you to do. Obey his word. That's, that's our calling as Christians. So how do we do whatever he tells us to do? We got a pair of headphones to hear Jesus speaking. It's called the Bible. You put on the pair of headphones and you hear Jesus speaking and anything he tells you to do, do it. That's life. There's joy in obedience to Jesus on the path of discipleship. We talked about that last week. Look, Brook Hills Kids Ministry. I love this. You think about Brook Hills Kids Ministry, what's it all about? Telling kids, the next generation, do whatever he tells you to do. There's a memory verse, so they've got a memory verse plan for our, our children to be discipled in the word. And on the short list of memory verses, our kids memorize these words from Jesus in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, that's our Brook Hills Kids Ministry and volunteers coming alongside believing parents and kneeling down in front of these young children and saying, you want your life to be built on a rock? You want wisdom? Do whatever he tells you. To do, follow Jesus. Somewhere between, you see, verse 8 and verse 9, somewhere in there the miracle happens. We're not told exactly when, we're just told it has happened by verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So there is the miracle, there is the sign, the question that's screaming is, well, what is the sign signify? What is it pointing to? And this is a good place for us to remember something deep in Old Testament history. Israel had songs that spoke of God's abundant blessing. Israel had songs that spoke of God's abundant blessing. And there are many examples of this, but one classic example is Psalm 104, verse 13 through 15. It says this, he, this is God, the picture of God. God 
waters the mountains from his palace. What a beautiful picture of God's provision for his people. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock. He provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains human hearts. This was a song sung thousands of years ago by God's people, and it's a song of remembrance of the provision and abundant blessing of Yahweh for the people. And you can just see it goes through all the things that sustained their lives. Livestock in the field, check. They've just sung that truth. The produce section is full, check. Bread that makes us full, check. Wine that makes us glad. No wonder the rabbi said, without wine, there is no joy. They had sung themselves deep into that metaphor of God's abundant, rich provision for his people. There was a famous scene in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Some of you came in this morning. It's like, okay, what's the connection between John 2 and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Well, here it is for you. All right, so... If you haven't seen the movie, there is a classic scene where, um, you know, he's plugging in the lights. Clark Griswold has set up 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights, and he's put them in the front yard, and something has gone horribly wrong. They, they don't twinkle. Something's broken, and the lights aren't connected, right? And he absolutely goes berserk trying to figure out what's wrong. He ends up kicking the props. Santa's being thrown around the front yard. He's just losing it in the front yard. And then he bears down, gives it another shot, finally corrects the error, and there is the final moment of triumph in the front yard, connects it, and the lights come on to Handel's Messiah. <laughs> I mean, Handel had no idea his... His music was going to be set to this. But Handel's Messiah, it's the hallelujah chorus. I mean, everything is just going strong. It's a moment of absolute triumph. And, and there's Clark Griswold, and he's on the verge of tears. And he's walking down the, the you know, string of people, and he's just greeting them, and he's hugging them. And he comes, he comes to his father-in-law, and, and uh, he leans in. He's just enjoying this moment with his father-in-law. And what does his father-in-law say? He says, the little lights aren't twinkling, Clark. And Clark says, I know, and thanks for noticing. (laughs) It's like, you had to point at the one thing that's missing because they were 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights, not just lights. And he has to point out of all things, the lights aren't twinkling. Something's, Something's missing. Wine in the Old Testament was a metaphor of creation twinkling. It, this is the perfect setup, right? Feet on the porch, the, the land dripping with milk and honey, glass of wine, right? This, this was a metaphor of we are so set under Yahweh's provision. He has provided everything that we need and everything that we could ever want. He has filled our lives with gladness and buoyancy and bounty and abundance. He is our God. To Israel, a world without wine was symbolic of a world without joy. Symbolic of a world without joy. Again, we have to remember that 
word that John is so careful to use for every one of these miracles that Jesus performs. They're signs. And that becomes so clear. For example, when Jesus, when Jesus multiplies the bread, and then he talks about bread, and he says, it's not about the bread. I'm the bread. That, that's the point. Right? John chapter 4, he meets this woman at the well. He says, you need water. She says, I've got water right here. He says, not this water. There's different water than this physical water. I'm talking about something else. And then, and then you come to John 2 right here in our text, and it's not about the wine literally there. It's not about restocking supplies for an ancient wedding, long gone wedding. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 6, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then in John chapter 15, what is Jesus going to say? He's going to say, I am the vine. You get connected, you get tapped into me, and abundance and life comes flowing through me to you, and the branches will bear fruit. It's rich metaphor. The beautiful thing is Jesus' very first calling card, identifying who he is, and it says, Lord of the feast. That's who I am. That's what I'm here for. I'm doing that all day. That's what my kingdom is coming to bring. Is that your Christianity? Do you have enough feasting in your Christianity? Enough joy, laughter, hilarity in your Christianity? Even the Apostle Paul says, even when the Christian gives, we should give cheerfully. It's that Greek word from which we get the word hilarious. There should be an effervescence, a, a joy, a delight, even in giving, even in suffering, as we read a moment ago from First Peter. Though you have not seen him, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Apostle Paul says, what are the marks of the kingdom of God? He says, here's how you know the kingdom of God has broken in on your life, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what comes breaking into our lives through Jesus Christ on the path of discipleship. So back to the story, Act 1. They don't have any wine. In Act 2, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. That bodes well. That's a moment pregnant with possibility. Fill the jars with water. John, you may have noticed, if you read this devotionally later on, um, John has been tracking each passing day from the beginning of this gospel. And especially from verse 1, Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19, he's tracking each passing day, the next day, the next day, the next day, two days later. He's keeping you in aware of how many days have gone by. This is the only time that John does this anywhere in his his gospel. What's interesting, and Don Carson, a noted New Testament scholar, points this out, is that John has marked the passing of seven days. It's exactly seven days. Days. So we've seen here the opening seven days of Jesus' ministry leading to this climactic miracle on that day. Remember how we saw the relationship in John chapter 1 to John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. They both start with the, the same three words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word uh, was with God and the word was God and, and so forth. So there's a clear relationship John is drawing between the beginning in Genesis 
and the new beginning in Jesus. There's parallels going on all through this. Genesis chapter one, in the beginning God had created the heavens and the earth and seven days of blessing culminates in a wedding. The garden becomes a wedding venue. And then John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and seven days of Jesus' work culminates in a wedding. What's John seem to be saying? He's saying Jesus is launching the new creation. Everything starts fresh in him. Life is possible in him. Everything that went sideways in the fall, he is redeeming it starting now. The clock starts now on the new creation. It's, the kingdom of God is coming here. John chapter one, what does John the Baptist announce Jesus? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the chapter before where we are. The chapter after where we are, John the Baptist says, here's who Jesus is. He's the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom, and a feast is coming around this bridegroom. The story wrapped inside the miracle is Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. Verse seven, look at it. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. We find out what those jars were for in verse six. They were used for Jewish purification. That too seems to be intentional. Those jars were sitting around, but they were jars that pointed back to the, the Old Testament way of worshiping that the worshipers had to purify themselves. And here are these jars, and Jesus repurposes Old Testament worship for New Testament festival and New Testament feast. It seems that John is being intentional even with that. In other words, Jesus' first miracle gestures toward the end of religious externalism, the end of trying to scrub yourself clean in the presence of God. The sign, in a sense, that's hung over John chapter 2 is out with the old and in with the new. And that's not, by the way, I think just a description of the theme of our text. It seems to be the description of the theme of the entire section in which our text is housed. From John chapter 2 through John chapter 4 is a textual unit. And all of the pieces and parts and uh, moving events that are happening there say the same thing. So just, for example, let me just walk you through this real fast. So right after Jesus repurposes these pots that were used for religious purification and he creates a 150-gallon watering hole for the refreshments of the festival, the wedding. Right after he does that, so out with the old and in with the new, he goes to the temple. What's he do there? He says, I'm closing this place down. He flips over tables, he cracks whips, and he says, I'm shutting this place down. I'm the new temple. I'm gonna be the temple. And then what happens after that? He talks with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says, your moral scorecard means nothing. You have to start from ground zero. You gotta go all the way back. You must be born again. Out with the old, in with the new. He's saying this to a Pharisee. These are typically fighting words to a Pharisee. He says, you got to start back at zero. You must be born again. And then what happens after that? He gets into a conversation with a woman at the well. The woman at the well asks a question. She says, which mountain's the holy mountain? How do we, which mountain has the best Wi-Fi for connecting with heaven, connecting with God? And what does Jesus say? Mountain, schmountain. It's not going to matter. It's not gonna matter anymore. There's a day coming. The Father is seeking worshipers. Doesn't matter what hilltop they're on because it's gonna come from inside. They're gonna be changed from within. They're gonna worship in spirit and in truth. Hilltops won't mean anything. The whole context of this passage is out with the old, 
in with the new. Jesus is indicating. We could summarize it from the Apostle Paul's words. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Robert Capon said, Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. It is the bizarre proclamation that religion is over, period. Man, is that your Christianity? Does your Christianity have that kind of life and joy and dancing tucked inside of it? What's the relevance of this for your life? The relevance is there's not a person in this room who doesn't need joy. And I use the word need on purpose. It's not an add-on. It's central. You were wired by God to find joy in Jesus Christ. That's why Augustine said many centuries ago, Lord, you have made us in such a way that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There's no joy outside of joy in Jesus Christ. Until we meet Jesus, we're drinking all the wrong wines. In him is fullness. In him are pleasures evermore. Jesus is giving a joy that runs deeper. Runs deeper than circumstantial happiness. The, the psalmist says he gives us songs in the night. God meets his people with such deep presence that even in our sorrows there is this unstoppable it's like the pilot light never goes off and the pilot light can warm the whole house the pilot light of joy is always on because God keeps it on I know some members of this church right now who are singing songs in the middle of the night Psalm 23 and it's quoted all the time Psalm 23 stop and think about it read it again it's too familiar. Psalm 23 is a mystery. What a mystery. Oh, the world can't understand Psalm 23. As a believer, you can because you're inside of it. As a believer, it computes that we can say in verse 4, we can say, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the next breath, we can say, my cup overflows. I don't know how this math works, but somehow, even in the valley of death, my cup is brimming. Christians get that. It's joy that comes from outside this world. Ray, Ray Ortland articulates, I think, something of the soul thirst in the world that's felt with such a pang apart from Christ. He says this, the deep reason for the anger and frustration and restlessness we experience in this life is our raging thirst for wine in a world of water. Our raging thirst for wine in a world of water. We, Christian friend, we have wine this world doesn't know about. Jesus' very first sign, and what's the sign indicate? It indicates Jesus is the opposite of a killjoy. He's not coming to make the world war, more religious. He he makes 120 plus gallons of wine and it's the end of the party. 
Right? That's what the head waiter says. He's like, usually this stuff comes out way earlier. The party's almost over, and you're bringing out the good stuff now? The party's almost over, and he makes 120, 150 gallons of vintage wine? What's going on here? This, this wine is pointing to a party that's bigger than this party. That's the point. The wine, that wine isn't all supposed to be drunk any more than all the miracle multiplied food is all supposed to be eaten. The 12 extra baskets weren't all supposed to be eaten that day. It's a metaphor. There's a parable. There's a point. The point was this. Wine makes the heart glad, and Jesus has it by the barrel. There's more where that came from. The prophet spoke of a coming day of gladness that would overtake all our sorrow. Now, this was the hope of Israel. And so often it's tied to that metaphor, that meaningful metaphor of wine. Here, here's, I wish I could read all the texts, but I'm just going to read two of them. Isaiah 25, this is pointing forward to Messiah's day. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. Joel 3 verse 18 In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will issue from the Lord's house. Some of you maybe have never tasted Christ. I mean, really tasted him in a life-transforming way. Joy comes into you from outside this world kind of way. Maybe you, I don't know what reason it was that you decided to come here this morning, but it seems to me that maybe God was up to something. Maybe he had his own reason to bring you here, and I suspect his reason is he wants to give you this. He wants to give you the wine that makes the heart of man glad. He wants real joy to come pouring into your soul through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world who purchased it for you on the cross. Real joy comes in a a meaningful, glorious deposit, but then a future fullness of inheritance that's awaiting. He had to die for any of us to get that, right? We, We don't deserve that. We don't deserve joy. We've sinned against a holy God. We don't deserve joy. We deserve judgment. If we're gonna talk about deserving, that's what we deserve, but God sent, as we'll learn, we'll see next week in John 3, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might have life by believing in him. Have you believed on him? The one hope of the world, the one who forgives our sins, the one who gives us joy. Believe today, turn from sin, trust in Christ. So Brook Hills, a couple of things for us to take away. We've talked about this for a few years now, that the New Testament picture of the church could be broken out into three things, worship, nurture, and mission, loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, and making disciples. 
of Jesus, everything, all of those things are carried along by joy. The worship of the church, the nurture of the church, and the mission of the church. So point number one as we head out in a moment, rejoice through worship. Rejoice through worship. Our worship here, gathered worship, should be joy unleashed. Psalm 92, people of old, they sang, it's good to sing praises to your name, for you have made us what? Glad. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. Our worship should be joy unleashed. It should be evident in our worship that there's joy inside of us. Second, rejoice through nurture, through the fellowship of the church. Our nurture is to be joy unleashed. In Acts chapter 2, you see the, the church gathering together for fellowship, and they're breaking bread, and they're receiving food with glad hearts. There's a spirit of joy and generosity around the table of fellowship. You know, it's impossible to impact, to, uh, to register or measure the impact of the life of one John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress and a number of other books, many of which he wrote while he was in prison in Bedford Jail for 12 years for preaching the gospel. He's a wonderful hero of the faith, humble soul, loved the words. Spurgeon said he bled the Bible. His, his blood was Bibline. He bled Bible. John Bunyan, his, a lot of his story there is known. What's less known is how he came to faith in Jesus. And how he came to faith in Jesus was basically the last, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was he walked past a, a small group of believers that were kind of having a small group. And he was eavesdropping on their fellowship. And that was the final magnet that pulled him to Jesus. Here's what he said. But upon a day... The good providence of God did cast me to Bedford to work on my calling. And in one of the streets of that town, I came where there were three or four poor women sitting at a door in the sun and talking about the things of God. Being now willing to hear them discourse, I drew near to hear what they said, for I was now a brisk talker also myself in the matters of religion. But now I may say I heard, but I understood not. For they were far above, out of my reach. For their talk was about a new birth. The work of God on their hearts. And I thought, I love this phrase, they spoke as if joy did make them speak. They spoke with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace and all they said that they were to me as if they had found another world. New world. Rejoice through nurture, and finally rejoice through mission. Our mission is joy unleashed. What is the cry of missions in Scripture? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be what? Glad. Let the nations be glad and rejoice. And before we're done, just think, think for a second about the connection between John 2 and modern weddings. So I've been to some weddings that were attended by some people in the room, and I happen to know that some of you have no inhibitions about dancing at weddings, like fast dancing, um, look the fool, like all in fast dancing at weddings. So you are, you're ready when it says twist and shout, you're twisting and shouting. When it says stop, collaborate, and listen, you're stopping, collaborating, you're listening. Like you're doing all the things that the songs, you know, slide to the left, slide. Like you're doing all the stuff that the song tells you to do, the whole deal. My, my longstanding sort of personal policy with regard to 
to weddings is I don't fast dance. So um, that's a long running practice in my life. I slow dance so that kind of that Luther Vandross slow jam comes on. I'm going grabbing Paula's hand, going out right. So, but but not um, not fast dancing. And that was my practice um, until a marriage of two close Brook Hills friends several years ago. And the DJ was a member of the church as well, and he was just picking all the great ones. And I'm sitting at a table, as I want to do, talking to people, not, not dancing. I'm talking to people. And I look out in the middle of the dance floor, and there are our three children. And they were, they were young, younger at that time, little, little ones, and they were, I mean, they were all in. They were going, going strong. And at that moment, and I don't know who taught him this, but our son Will um, sort of had a, a, a gesture that imitated the casting of a fishing line in my direction and his mom's direction, and then he began to, to reel this fishing line toward the dance floor, and he's just zinging away, like he's just doing this from the dance floor. And here's the crazy thing, it worked. <laughs> and next thing you know, like all five of us, for the first time ever, all five Masons were like going hard on the dance floor. Like I'm having a cardiovascular experience. I've not danced this hard since Grace King High School, right? And I'm going all out, sweating the whole thing. I was a little self-conscious, but, but it was tons of fun. I mean, huge, huge fun. I'm thinking, look at us, all five of us dancing full on here. Here's the latest Here's the latest update. I haven't been back on the dance floor since that event several years ago. So I'm, I'm firmly back into my um, no dancing policy and practice. But I think about that. And, and I wonder if the world looks at us Christians, figuratively speaking, as the people who don't dance. That, that's who we are. If you want intensity, you can come find us. That's where we are. It's at the outskirts of the dance floor, arms folded, looking very intense. Like that's, that's what we're here for. But not, not the mirth thing, not the enjoyment, laughter, giddy thing. Like that's not, that's not really our thing. It's interesting. If you look at the first century, the mission of the church in the early church, as soon as the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and they come pouring out of the upper room into the streets and there is such effulgence, there is such an effusive joy about them that what does the community think? You've been drinking. And the, the apostles have to clarify, say, no, these, these are not drunk. We've not been hitting the bottle up there in the upper room. We've been filled with the Spirit. That's the explanation for this effusive joy, this gladness, this boldness in speech. The people thought they had been drinking, and in a way, they had. <laughs> what swept over the world in the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles was not more water in a world full of water. What flooded the world was the taste of new wine in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it ran out into the streets, and joy went with it. Wherever the gospel went, joy went with it. Acts chapter 8, the gospel comes into a new part of the city, and it says, and there was much joy in that city. We can have joy in Jesus. 
and we can offer joy in the gospel of Jesus.